Welcome back. The first uh, question somebody came up and asked me was about this uh, sacrificial uh, system and, and how many Adventist pastors will talk about the heavenly sanctuary and how in the record Jesus applies his blood to, to cover the sin and not race it, but to cover it with his blood. And Okay, there is a way to understand that metaphor that is not wrong, and it's very straightforward and simple. If you understand the heavenly records are more like what we would call medical records, and the medical records... Uh, if you, and the medical records say, has a diagnosis of cancer. The way you change the medical record from diagnosing cancer is by curing the cancer in the, pa- in, in, in the patient who has it. And then the medical records will show the cancer was there, the medical records show the treatment was applied, and the medical record will now show they're cancer-free. And so, yes, you can have an argument if you want to use heavenly records where the records are being cleansed, but the only avenue to cleanse the record would be through the cleansing the hearts and minds of the people that are living on earth. That's the only avenue to achieve that. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Next uh, question here. It says, is there any benefit at all in a church owning a Formula One race car team? How is that relevant to the gospel? Well, the question is without any um, substance. And what I mean by that is there's no context. So it's all left open to wide open speculation. Could somebody own a team like that and for completely selfish reasons and money making and earthly aggrandizement? Sure. Could somebody own a team like that for the entire intention to reach with the gospel people who would not otherwise ever talk to them or get near them? And so it becomes a mechanism whereby they can connect with people in a community they don't have any contact with to share the gospel with. So you, it, it's all about motive. It really, you can't answer the question. Uh, could it? Possibly. What happens with the, different, with the different resurrections from the second coming on where we're all raised at the last trump, but then wicked are destroyed by the brightness of coming, yet the wicked live during the thousand years, or they don't live during the thousand years, or is the resurrection of the wicked after the thousand years? Why is that? And so forth. Um, I, I, I go into great detail and describe this. Uh, if you go to our commonreason.com page, two places. One, um, if you go over to the resources tab, scroll down uh, to... The Power of Love course, and under the Power of Love course, you can scroll down and find Death and Resurrection, and I talk about it there. You can also uh, click the seminar from Fear to Friends seminar, and the third lecture answering difficult Bible questions on that series about, uh, about halfway in or so, I actually go into great detail also describing the sequence of events on the various death, the various resurrections when they occur and why they happen. And so I'd encourage you to check out those resources. I appreciate your presentation regarding the sanctuary message as a theater. I was just informed that you are an 1844 denier. Uh, I don't believe you are. (laughs) However, uh, how do you explain what happened in 1844 and how the cleansing from sin is different from the cleansing of sin that was occurring before 1844? Uh, I believe I just answered that in class. And so um, this question was posted before class. And so I'm not going to go into it again. But if you missed class, then go back and listen to what we just recorded because I think I went into good detail on that. Uh, Hi, Doc. Tim and ministry team, the dramatic changes in climate upheaval these past 15-odd years and now more more intense than ever uh, has brought me to ask questions about these natural events. First off, I'm going to question your premise. Is the problem uh, actual climate events occurring or propaganda in the media creating in our minds terrible climate events occurring. Okay, and and I would encourage you to read my blog on um, the climate change lies and God's promises. And uh, so I am am not persuaded by the evidence 
that all the stuff they're telling us is true. In fact, it's, in fact the, the actual evidence that I've been able to see, it's wrong. What they're telling us about climate change is exactly the opposite of what's actually happening. You have to remember all the climate change um, propagandists and big um, government leaders who are promoting this worldview are all godless. None of them believe in the Bible. They don't believe in a short earth history. Uh, they don't believe that there was a flood. They don't believe that after the flood there was a, uh, a that that there was a an ice age that and that the planet has been slowly warming ever since the uh, aftermath of the flood. Uh, they see this in, in millions of years and and rather than thousands of years. And so their entire understanding of the data is all warped by a godless worldview. Further, their agenda is to create a threat to humanity that human beings cannot see, taste, touch, smell, or identify with any of the natural senses God has given you. Uh, that's what the viral threat was about. You have to just believe an authority figure to tell you you're in danger anywhere you go. You're, everybody is a threat to you everywhere you go. It's, and, and they create this fear. And now the climate is the same thing. It's another threat that is beyond your capacity to actually measure. Because if you, with the data that we do have, the climate on planet Earth has certain oscillations to it. Just like most living organisms have oscillations, your body has a 24-hour circadian rhythm where your body temperature and heart rate and various other functions and uh, change in an oscillating cycle. And the globe itself has an oscillating cycle of, of different types of activities going on. That is not to say that human beings have not polluted and or damaged the, uh, the natural world they have. And that's a different question uh, about uh, exploiting and abusing the planet. Uh, we, we are to be... Um, stewards of the planet and protect it. But this whole idea of this, this uh, carbon going into the system and, and, and destroying the planet is a lie. The data actually shows that the more carbon fossil fuels we burn and the more carbon dioxide we put into the environment, the greener and more earth-friendly the planet is getting. Over the last 40 years, the uh, deserts uh, that, that are measured by NASA and other satellites have decreased about 20%. And we have more habitable uh, uh, space on this planet since uh, the burning of the fossil fuels because carbon dioxide is, uh, is oxygen to the planets, bas uh, plants, basically. They, that's what they breathe in to, cr to grow. And in fact, if you go online and look up carbon dioxide um, um, generator, you can, get, you can buy carbon dioxide generators for your greenhouses to make more carbon dioxide because the plants will grow more rapidly if you do that. And, and uh, yes, it's, it's, so this whole thing about carbon dioxide, it's all bogus. It's all a big lie by the, by the, by the uh, evil forces in this planet who want to take your liberty and get you to agree that you need to have laws passed that tell you you can't have fossil fuels, you can't have gas-powered um, uh, various appliances in your home anymore, you can't use a gas-burning uh, um, uh, leaf blower in your, in, your city, in your yard. I don't know if you heard that, but a city, I think it's Ann Arbor, Michigan, passed a law that uh, by 2028 uh, that all gas-blowing leaf blowers are going to be outlawed. And if you use one, you go to jail, okay? This is all des designed to take liberty from people, to surrender our autonomy, to raise prices and anything. And, and the goal, understand what the real goal of all this is, the real goal is to turn the masses into serfs. Understand Satan's form of government has always been a few ruling elites using authoritarian power over the masses to exploit the masses for the benefit of the elites. This is what Satan did when he said, I wanted to rise up into heaven and take God's throne. And you look at all the systems of human government through history, they always have ruling elites exploiting the masses. The U.S. Constitution tried to 
take the, the power from the three historical groups that exploit the masses, and the three historical groups are government officials themselves, okay? The big, wealthy merchants, the aristocracies of the, of the various lands, and the religious um, uh, leaders, the, the shamans and stuff, the popes, the prelates, and so forth. These are the three groups of people that have always exploited the masses. And the U.S. Constitution was designed to restrain the powers of the elites and give power to the people. And, 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 and ever since then, it has been under attack by the elites so they can gain the power back over the masses. And what you're seeing through this whole global warming and climate change garbage is a, a seduction of the people so the people calmly go along with surrendering their liberties to these powers powerful elites who are going to take their, their autonomy from them and, and restrict their liberty more and more and more. I've got a couple of blogs on this where I describe this happening, but see it in the larger landscape of reality. Anyway, um, anyway th- but the question goes on to ask about holding back the four winds of strife and uh, what happens when the four winds loosen and so forth. The primary loosening of the four winds, yes, there will be, uh, what I see, the loosening of the four winds are these rising of the global elites rising um, up of these uh, corporate interests, the restrictions of our liberties, the the godless uh, atheistic teachings happening in the world, uh, the assault on marriage and families. These are the, these demonic forces working to actually attack the minds of people so that, do you understand that um, in uh, 40 years ago, 1980s and 90s, gender dysphoria was infinitesimally small. I mean, Less than a percentage of a percentage. In, in certain states in America right now, 20% of youth identify, 20%, one in five identify as gender dysphoric. This is, this is driven by demonic forces giving propaganda and distorted media into their minds that are confusing them. That's what's driving this. And this is part of the four winds loosening that demonic forces are able to bring demonic ideas to bear more, more easily because the ultimate battle is not a physical battle. Yes, there will be, nature will pay, and people will pay, and so forth and so on. You will have wars and rumors of wars and all those things, but the real battle is a battle for hearts and minds. That's the real battle. Then there's a question, somebody asked a four-part question about what's a real Sabbath keeper, and I want to tell the person who submitted this question that I'm glad you submitted it because it demonstrates you're wrestling with the question. You're wrestling with the, I keep wrestling with that question. Keep working it out. But, but the way the question reads to me, and I'm not going to read it, it's a four-part question, it really stems, uh, it really presents to me as somebody who's looking for a ruling. You're looking for me to rule between two different scenarios. Which is the true, and then ask, which is the true Sabbath keeper? Well, this is actually uh, framing it in the wrong landscape. It's framing it in the landscape of a human judicial system, an umpire, a referee, somebody to make a ruling. But this is not what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 14, when it was talking about these very things, one person esteems one day more than another, another person esteems all days alike, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And in Isaiah chapter 58, God says, unless you call the Sabbath a delight, you're not, uh, not actually a Sabbath keeper. And so you, I can't give a ruling on who's the true Sabbath keeper because I can't recognize the motives of the heart that and what's going on there. I can tell you, though, that God did not provide the Sabbath to us as a legal rule for us to observe. It was a gift. It was made for us. We were not made for the Sabbath. And so 
I would encourage every person to study it out for themselves and decide what is the gift? What does God want to gift me with by gifting humanity this day? And how can I benefit from this gift? And how can I interact with God in appreciation and thanks for this gift that it becomes a blessing in God's plan for my life? Every person has to weigh that out for themselves. When we are taken to heaven, is it a physical place with physical buildings and physical landscape, maybe, of a sim, uh, maybe a simulation of the future earth, maybe not far away, but in another time dimension so we can't see it yet? If yes, what would be the purpose of bringing us back to earth for, after a thousand years? You speak of Jesus preparing living places in heaven as a metaphor. Does it also have a literal meaning? Well, the last, excuse me, last question I'll answer first. If it's metaphor, it always has a literal meaning because if it's not connected to some reality, then it's fantasy. So yes, any metaphor in scripture has a literal meaning. And so eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered in the heart of man what the Lord has in store for him. But um, it's very clear to me, Jesus was resurrected bodily and went into heaven. Moses was resurrected bodily and went into heaven. Elijah uh, went in a chariot into heaven. These are in a physical body. And so we, heaven is a real physical place with real physical stuff. <laughs> well, what that stuff is, we don't know yet. What it looks like, we don't know yet. Um, but yes, it will, it will be real and it will be physical. It will not be digital. Okay. And why do we come back to earth? Because, well, Jesus said the, the meek shall inherit the earth. The earth is the place where the war was won by Jesus on this planet, and because of that, the earth becomes the central hub of all of God's creation. It becomes the capital of the heavenly kingdom. God reigns from this planet because this planet is the lesson book, and it says in 1 Corinthians 4, it is a lesson book that the angels long to look into, a theater, a spectacle to men. And so when he makes the earth new, he brings his capital, the new Jerusalem, back to earth, and we reign with Christ here. He shares his throne with us, and this becomes the central hub for all eternity future, which will always be evidence of God's character, his methods, his principles, how he governs, what he achieved through Jesus Christ, and through all eternity future, we will study this. the, The cross will be our science and our song, as it will be for all the unfallen beings. So that's why. Uh, 2 Kings 19.35 states that that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrians. Uh, When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. I have Christian friends who tell me that this action of God or his representative angels proves that God does directly punish and it validates their belief in hell. I I do not believe that. I find it a challenge to explain this. How would you answer this to my friend? And what's the answer here? It's a very, I already mentioned it in class today. That's right. They, they conflate or they merge or they mix first death events with second death events. The punishment for sin is eternal death, eternal non-existence that uh, happens at the end of the thousand years. This is the same death that Daniel and the righteous die. This is a sleep death. They go to sleep and they will rise in one of two resurrections. So this is not punishment for sin. And even if they have the penal legal model, you say, when does punishment happen? Before or after judgment? 
Well, in their model, you have to have judgment and then you have punishment. Well, when's the judgment? Well, the judgment's future. So this still can't be punishment for sin, even in their model. So it's two errors in their way of understanding. But this happens all the time where they will take something that appears to be something and they will make an assumption or an application uh, to a conclusion that it doesn't belong to. And this would be ultimately the consequence and punishment for sin. Peace and blessings. We're listening to an SDA pastor Bible class. He was teaching in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He said something that stood out to me, which I thought makes no sense. Good for you, because I've read this already, and it doesn't make sense. Uh, He said that God did not bless the seventh day until he finished resting on it. He blessed it at the beginning of the second week. In other words, the seventh day was blessed on the first day of the second week because that was when he finished resting, and is there any truth in that? So you can take that at face value factually to answer when, or you can actually hear what type of thing are they asking? What type of understanding, what type of God, what type of law, what type of authority is described in the question? What what kind of blessing is, is, is described here? This is an authoritarian God, whose blessing is an edict. The blessing is something he declares, and he didn't declare the blessing, and that's what made the blessing, okay? That is not creator God. That is a Roman God. And so the person who says this is declaring to you, they see God's law working like human law. He's sovereign. He says it. He makes it happen. He enforces it with his power and authority, and that's the blessing. That's not the blessing. What's the blessing? He created the day, and he ceased using power. Days one through six, he created, he created, he created, he created. Day seven, he rested. He stopped using power. What's the blessing of a day in which the creator doesn't use power? Why is that the blessing? It's the day of freedom. It is confirmation evidence that Satan is a liar from the beginning. Satan's lie from the beginning is God has rules. And if you don't obey his rules, he's required by law to punish. He's an authoritarian God. Do what he says or else. And what does the Sabbath prove? That he presents truth, the truth that I'm the creator, the truth of how his principles run because he just created an entire planet that operate on the law of love and all the ecosystems, every, every system operating in love and giving a beneficence to the others and it's all self-sustaining in this, in this complex world of love. And then he said, universe, believe it or I'm required by law and justice to kill you. No, he said, I rest. I rest my case. No pressure, no coercion, no threat. You weigh the evidence, come to your own conclusion. No more power from me. I stop using power. And the blessing is in the, uh, is in the evidence God has given of his nature, his methods, his character, how it works. We are blessed when we engage with him and enter into his rest. And that's the blessing. It was built in. And this is how the Sabbath sets apart from any other day of worship because the Sabbath was created as a day in which God rested, any other day that is used as a day of worship becomes a special day through declaration and less legislation, not through creation. 
And so one day represents the creator God and how he runs his universe. The other day represents a Roman God and how he runs his kingdom. And this is the big difference. So no, I would say on face value, this just the whole question is and, and presentation is confirming evidence that the person who thinks this way accepts the Romanization of Christianity, how God runs his universe. Please explain how Jacob deceived Esau. Uh, Jacob deceived his father in stealing Esau's blessing. Esau made a bad choice to sell it for porridge or, or, or a bowl of soup, but it was Jacob deceiving his father, that is, uh, to steal the, the, uh, the uh, blessing. Explain Hebrews 9.22. I read it from the remedy as, as well. I think it should read, without Christ giving his life. So without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so you have to, that this is, this is symbolic language describing literal history. Without the shedding of blood? Does that mean without the shedding of animal blood? No, Hebrews already said that animal blood doesn't do anything. So it's without the shedding of Jesus' blood. What does it mean? What does that mean? I mean, if Jesus would have just cut his finger and shed some blood, and that would all be good? Is that what it meant? I mean, it says the shedding of blood. It actually doesn't say death. It doesn't say without killing him. It says the shedding of blood. So do we take that literally or do we, I mean, you see the point. When you have to study scripture, you have to actually ask what it means, not just the words. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Or some translation, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. What does it mean? What's in the blood? Life. Life. Without the shedding of life, there's no remission of sin. Pardon? Without the giving up of life, there's no remission of sin. Why? What does that mean? What does remission mean? It can mean forgiveness, and many will argue it's a, it's a legal forgiveness. It's not. In Scripture, forgiveness can be simply a legal act, forgiving someone from a... But it also can mean the entire process of reconciliation and restoration. Was it back in one minute? At one restoration, right. So without Jesus, self-sacrificial death... And his sinless life given to us, could we be cleansed from sin? No. No. It's no. all it's saying is without the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, who took upon himself the terminal sin condition and eradicated it and restored God's life-causing principle in humanity, without him doing that, there was no way for us to be reconciled or put back in harmony with God. This is how Jesus reconnected this fallen human species with heaven again. And that's all it means. It's very simple. Jesus is the connecting link. I've often wondered if there were any children before Cain and Abel, which are not dated in the Bible, as Seth was 130 years uh, old. Seth was at 130. Uh, I know that the Bible mostly focuses on the seed and therefore would not need to submit other boys and girls before Adam and Eve that were not of any significance, hence the mention. But Genesis 3.16 indicates prior labor pains before the fall. Hmm. Are there any inspired sources that touch on this? None that I'm aware of. Uh, how, would you wor- how would that work, children born before the fall? I am unaware. In fact, my view is that there was no children born before the fall. None. That's my view of it. If they were, then they would be, if that were to be the case, the way I would view that would be that they would be like the angel Gabriel uh, and they would be in a sinless state themselves. And uh, Adam and Eve would be like Lucifer, 
uh, part of the same species who rebelled away. Uh, Adam and Eve having procreative abilities, every child born of Adam and Eve is born in sin, conceived in iniquity. If there was a child that was living prior to their fall, they would not inherit the, the fallen condition. They would have inherited a sinless condition. I just don't believe there's any evidence. It's all speculative, and I don't believe that's true. I don't think there is a sinless human other than Jesus Christ. Where is that person? I mean- right. Well, he would have been, the, the idea of spe- speculation, you can speculate anything. Well, well, when Adam and Eve fell, that sinless person was taken to heaven, oh. like Enoch was, okay, and so forth. Your message is certainly an end-time message. Are there other teachers around the world standing behind lectern Sabbath morning teaching God's design law message? Yes, there are. We have lots of friends around the circle teaching this message all over the world. We have people in South Africa, we have people in the Philippines, people in... Uh, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, people in Canada. We have people all over teaching this uh, where they have opportunity to do so. Are they teaching it officially within the organized system? Almost never, because uh, sometimes they are able to have a class and some churches allow it, local churches, but frequently what happens is this message comes forward, the authoritarian system treats those who teach this message the same way they treated Ellen White when, and Jones and Wagner in 1888. They shut the message down, they officially deny it, and they ship people out like they shipped Ellen White to Australia when she was teaching this message. And that's what happened. So many people were asked to go worship elsewhere. And that means that the Adventist church over time gets a selection bias. It gets a selection bias in which those who hold to the Romanization of Christianity with an imperial dictator God become leaders in the organization and the organization becomes reinforcing and all those who would bring this light and this truth back into the population at large are asked to leave. And many of the good-hearted Adventist people in the pews don't even know about this message because the system works very hard to keep it from them, to not give them a, a real choice. And that's where each one of you have the opportunity to share it with your friends, share it with family within the system. Do they call that selective bias? Yeah. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for your love and for what you've presented in your word. Thank you for the privilege of being part of your team to take a message to the world that will heal hearts and minds. We ask for your outpouring of your spirit to enable us to be effective at this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen.